we want to live an authentic life, I would say that involves reflection. And we all have a different idea of what authentic life might mean, what it would look like. For me, the opposite of an authentic life is a life that concludes with someone full of regrets, full of remorse for that which they didn't do. So there are a bunch of hospice nurses that have written articles about the regrets of the dying that they've seen over and over again. Bonnie Ware, Maggie Callanan. You can just look up if you're interested, regrets of the dying. And there's, I wish I had pursued what mattered to me, not what others expected. This was the most common regret. When we associate with difficult to please people, we abandon our authentic goals and interests. As one patient said, the moment you lose your health, it's too late. Health is a precious freedom that allows us to do things that few of us realize until it's gone. The second regret is, I wish I didn't work so hard. As people near death, they regret spending their lives on the treadmill of work. By simplifying our lifestyle and making smart choices, it is possible to not need the income we believe we need. I'll talk a little bit about more of these. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. When people have a tendency to suppress their authentic emotions and feelings as a way to maintain connection with others, they look back later on in life and feel that their relationships were hollow and not deep and meaningful. I wish I had stayed in touch with certain friends. Obviously in life people drift away due to having children or moving away or to different obligations or to petty resentments that we don't forgive or that they don't forgive and during the final stages of life, people begin to miss certain friends, but by that point it's too late to track them down. And finally, I wish I had let myself be happier. People realize at the end that happiness is not a, something that's given. It's not something that is a result of luck, but it's actually a choice. It's a result of the Buddha said of the quality of our actions. So, and, and that's by the way, borne out by the research of Sandra Leobomorsky and Martin Seligman and all the positive psychologists who pioneered in happiness research who found that at least 50% of people's sustainable happiness was the result of their actions, not genetics, not wealth or marital status or anything else, just how we use our minds. So there's this false belief that Buddhists solution to finding peace and authenticity in life is all about acceptance. We hear today 
wonderful books are available by people like Tara Brock that talk about the power of acceptance and it's a very valuable tool. There are many things in life, in fact, that we can't do anything about. We are going to all grow old. There will be sickness. There will be the loss of people we love. There will be setbacks in life. And to be able to acknowledge, to not retreat into denial or self-pity when difficult experiences occur is, of course, a very important spiritual tool, but it's not the only spiritual tool. And tonight's talk will focus on making reflections that will help us author change in our life. Changes that have the goal or the intention of leading more authentic lives. By authentic, I mean lives that reflect something that matters deeply to us, not performative behaviors that we've developed to simply get approval from other people, but the endeavors that really deeply resonate in our hearts. And for each of us, they're different. There is no right or wrong authentic purpose so long as it doesn't cause harm to other beings. So, it's interesting in the Buddha's talks to lay practitioners, he urged them to live authentic lives again and again in the Sigalavada Sutta. He asks people to reflect on interesting things like, how do I spend my money? I think the underlying idea being if we spend it recklessly, then we put more pressure on ourselves to work more, and then we put more pressure to have a poor work-life balance, and we don't engage in the activities that bring us deeper feelings of fulfillment. He also talks about, again and again, reflecting on the people we surround ourselves. As he puts it in the Idivutaka Sutta, beware of those you associate with, for you become like them. So if we surround ourselves with the anxious, we become anxious. If we surround ourselves with those who have conviction and are creative, we will find ourselves moving in that direction. In the path itself is founded only on a few factors of internal meditation, but the Eightfold Path, by far, most of the factors involve changing how we act and the choices we make. The first factor is a realization, as I said, that suffering and happiness is not a matter of luck. It's a matter of how we act and what intentions we cultivate. If we cultivate authentic intentions, which are intentions to do that which we love, connect with those people that are important, to express compassion to ourselves and others, we will invariably live in happier minds. If we live from fear, if we act out of fear, if we choose livelihoods out of fear, if we let our work life 
ratios be determined by fear, then we will live in fearful minds. The key three factors in the Eightfold Path that focus on what the Buddha's call to actions, skillful speech, acts, and right livelihood. In the emphasis of skillful speech, it's not just upon not causing harm or lying, but the Buddha calls for honest speech, where we express our true hearts. One should speak, this is the quote from the Right Speech Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya, one should speak words that are true and beneficial even if others find them disagreeable. A lot of people I've come into contact with in spiritual centers seem to have that yogic voice. Oh, it's so lovely to see you all the time. Everything, the idea is to be spiritual is to always be equanimous, happy, peaceful, to never have a dark emotion, to never be disappointed, to never be upset, to never be sad or lonely. Skillful speech, though, is actually to express in a way that's not intended to cause harm, but to express authentically one's internal emotional experience. We don't want to live with the regret in the future that we founded relationships upon simply saying and doing what other people wanted us to say and do. Right livelihood, I've, I've heard so many from Buddhist monks and teachers, I've been around for a while, I've heard so many different talks on it, and the emphasis is always on the prohibitions against selling weapons, manipulation, promoting meat, drugs, alcohol, stuff like that, poisons. But I rarely heard people teach about the other important wing of right livelihood, which is to choose a life livelihood, a, a, an occupation that in some way makes you feel like your life is bettering other people's lives but also not to do it too much. Studies showed by Lyubomorsky that there are two main ingredients to happiness, people who are connected to those that are emotionally tolerant and those who felt that their work or endeavors were bettering or helping the greater good. They saw that their endeavors were helping others. You got those two, throw in a little meditation, you'll probably be a happy camper. I would say that we could throw away all the prohibitions and simply say choose work that feels meaningful, that you love and do it just enough to survive. Now why is it so difficult to balance work and life 
and to enact these principles, given that I'm sure that when I spoke of the regrets of the dying, none of them were new to you. I'm sure that it's not news that people regret losing touch with their friends or working too much or being performative in their relationships that they wish they stayed connected with those they love. I'm sure none of this is news. You've all heard it before. And yet, even though we have this information, we can act completely in ways that contradict this wisdom. Well, I'll throw out a few speculative reasons why. And then I hopefully will conclude by talking about really realistic ways we can enact authentic choices. So I would suspect that the first reason why people live in authentic lives is because of our old friend capitalism, which not only creates vast wealth inequality and de constantly deprives people of safety nets, and so it creates fear. And of course, there are spiraling rents where we live. But on top of it, it bombards us with false messages of what happiness is. We see all the time aspirational representation that success, happiness, fulfillment looks like, looks like somebody living in a loft with a river view. Even on um, every single police procedural TV show, the cop always lives in a loft overlooking <laughs> the East River. And capitalism is a way of foisting these expectations that are completely unrealistic. And even if you do get there somehow, I don't know how you, you manage it, but you do get a loft with a view of the East River and you know it's 2,000 square feet, that will not make you happy. It will just give you a lot more space. Also, capitalism foists the biggest lie of all, which is that the goal of life is retirement. Why do I say that? Other than the fact it's complete hogwash. Well, there was a study in 2005 of thousands of people who retired, and they found that if you retired between the ages of 55 and 65, your chances of dying were well over twice as high as those who continued to work. And in fact, within every year you retire, your chances of dying raise 30%. People who retire actually wind up with notable incidents of depression and negative emotions because they wind up often disconnected with their support group that they've developed over years of work. Also, their sense of purpose, connectedness, vitality in the world is deprived. And human beings, our limbic structures, are not set to operate in isolation. If you have somebody who's for 30 years worked in a certain setting and then you have them 
go away from it, their limbic structures will be hyperactivated and you'll start to produce too much cortisol, too little white blood cells. You'll start aging very quickly. You won't probably be happy unless you replace your livelihood with something, an endeavor that keeps you just as busy that you love, in which case you'll do fine. For my way of looking at it, a far better choice is to find work you love that is meaningful and do it until you drop dead. In every country I've traveled, in Buddhist countries where I, you meet people in their 80s and 90s who are working, they are invariably not only healthy, but they are happy. They're not isolated and disconnected. So, uh, the second reason why people often are find difficult to enact authentic choices is also because of early life experiences. I read this study of people who turn into hoarders and they invariably have early life experiences where one parent or another suddenly lost their job or died or there was a divorce and the family sense of security income plummeted and from that point on the child feels insecure and believes that the only way they can feel safe in the world is by accumulating and surrounding themselves with things. Of course it doesn't work. It leaves them quite miserable and isolated, but there are early life experiences that can lead people to make self-sabotaging choices. Possibly the biggest reason that we struggle to take the risks that allow us to achieve meaningful lives is due to the nature of the human brain itself. We all live in brains with hyperactivated hair trigger amygdalas. Those are the warning systems in the brain, the threat activating systems of the brain. And for the first 190, 195,000 years of human species existence, our amygdalas made a lot of sense. We were living with lifespans that would rarely raise above 25 or 30. There was death everywhere. We were hunted. We didn't run particularly fast. We don't climb trees well or dig holes. So having a early warning system that makes us fearful makes a lot of sense. Newsflash, in the last 50,000 years, we've developed foodstuffs, city-states. We are now the dominant species. We're actually living, statistically, in the safest time to be alive in our species. And yet, we still live with the exact same amygdala that makes us terrified and fearful. But now it hunts around for that which to be frightened of. So instead of being frightened of threats that might keep us from living the next 24 hours, we can be fearful of events that are extremely improbable, that might be 30 years away. What will, I, how much money will I have when I'm old? What will I do if I lose my job six months from now? 
None of that leads us to make wise, authentic choices. Now, of course, I'm not going to argue that you should throw all caution to the wind. The point of this talk is to rebalance ourselves so that we act against the ingrained fears that keep us locked in relationships, friendships, livelihoods that are essentially not producing a sense of fulfillment or meaning or purpose in our lives. Other things that get in the way, of course, are the right hemisphere, which is set to connect with other people, doesn't really, isn't really particularly choosy. We will abandon ourselves and do just about anything to get love and often mimic, as the Buddha noted in the Ibhutaka, we will unconsciously mimic the actions of those around us. The left hemisphere really buys into the narrative stories about where happiness is to be found, and also the belief that happiness is in the future, somewhere over there, when I get my degree, when I become a famous singer, songwriter, guitar player, I don't know what. It's not available to me right now. Those are the false beliefs. The irony is, is that the beliefs that keep us leading inauthentic lives are the beliefs that say happiness is not available right now. It's something that you have to earn and it's decades away that you don't deserve it right now, and that you really can't today take the actions that will realign your life. Ironically, all of the actions and choices are available to us right now. They don't require any financial boom. They don't require us to spend anything. They are simply a little difficult. But the long-term rewards are vast. None of these four I'm going to review are easy. But if you take them, I guarantee your life will immediately have more purpose. So here goes. One, as the Buddha said, seek out those people that are emotionally tolerant and wise. It doesn't matter how funny a certain friend is, or theatrical, or di distracting, or diverting. If they don't give you a tuned connection, if they don't pay attention to you, if they don't support your emotions, if they are not available to you in times of need, they are not a true friend. The Buddha defines a true friend in the Mita Sutta as the only people worth associating with are those that are generous and tolerant, who share their secrets while keeping yours safe. When misfortune occurs, they never look down on you. They never abandon you. So very often we gravitate towards people that seem, as the Buddha said, he uses the word suba, attractive, interesting, dynamic. But we don't ask ourselves, are our deeper needs of connecting and bonding and 
expressing our emotions being met. And if they're not, we should investigate how much time we're spending with those that don't reciprocate, that don't provide attunement and empathy, and seek out those that do. In my own life, I found that I went from the... Uh, my friends were the young punks that I grew up with on the streets of New York to the people I met when I got my act together and went to school, namely the people who smoked pot with me, did drugs with me. Then they turned into, about 21 years ago, the people I met in 12-step rooms that helped me get sober and had a more spiritual message. And then about 15 years ago, they by and large became Buddhist practitioners. And with each gradual shift in my support group, there was a corresponding change in how well I took care of myself, how well I connected with other people, how deep my friendships were, how emotionally bonded I felt. The second core choice is called Marana Sati. And well, let me, before I go to that, let me just say that reaching out, meeting new people at a place like this, or you could go to a Quaker meeting, or to a yoga class, or wherever you believe that somebody might be available. Meeting people is scary. We're all terrified of rejections. It's not easy to reach out. It's not easy to introduce ourselves. And yet, the payoff is vast. I think I said vast once before. So, the payoff is great. All right, Marana Sati. Without exposure to death, we lose track of life's fragility again and again and again. We believe that we have more guarantee, more time, than is very often the case. And it's a lesson that you can't tell yourself. You have to experience it. If you do, it's difficult, but the results are immediate. So, three, reflect if your work feels beneficial to the greater good and meaningful to you. So that can mean either you literally see your work betters the lives of other people, or in some way it authentically expresses your emotions. So if you're an artist, a musician, you write, something that expresses your true core internal experience, that will be valid as well, that can help others. But don't do something that doesn't feel meaningful, because you don't want to live your life spending the amount of time we do at work if it's not meaningful. If you find that your work is not purposeful, then you probably won't want to quit it tomorrow. Well, Josh, that weird tattoo Buddhist guy said my, I should quit. Figure out what you love, reflect on the things in your life, the behaviors, the actions that have brought you, the sense of purpose. Figure out how you can take the experience you have and move it towards that which feels more beneficial and purposeful. And finally, reprioritize how we spend our free time. This means, one, 
if there's a small resentment that's keeping you from being in touch with someone you care about, forgive them. Live as if you've got three months to live and forgive them. Unless you're absolutely certain they're going to cause you harm again, then don't forgive them. <laughs> or forgive them, but stay away. But if you believe there's a way to salvage the relationship, forgive yourself for things you've done, forgive them and connect. And finally, if you don't have a creative lifestyle, find a way to create as opposed to consuming entertainment all the time. If you come home and the default is you're tired and you go on Facebook or Netflix or read a book, that's fine. But I urge you to spend some time writing, journaling, drawing, doing something that brought you joy at some point in your life. You will not regret it, I guarantee. So again, this is a rebalancing talk. All my talks are about pushing people towards opening, exploring, taking risks, encouraging you. None of this is about an extreme. It's simply about finding a middle way. How can I move towards making choices that will make me feel I won't, in the future, I won't regret the way I've spent my life. So let's practice. Closing the eyes. Finding a balanced seat. If you have a tendency for your head to drift over your body, I'd encourage you to tilt your head up like you're looking at something about 20 degrees above the horizon, like you're looking at a, a sunset or something. You're looking above the horizon. Just tilting your head like you're looking up a little bit keeps the head from floating in front of the body, which stops the muscles in the back of the neck and shoulders from developing any pain. It keeps you more pleasantly alert. It also creates a sense of connection with the body beneath. If there's a nice line between the head and the hips, it's easier to then gradually move into the body below. So let's take three breaths. The first, while you breathe in slowly through the nose, lifting the shoulders up towards the ears if you like, you don't have to, but trying to touch your ears with your shoulders, holding them up there for an extra few beats and then breathing out through the mouth and just dropping those shoulders till they feel really relaxed. And you can even, if you like, pull them slightly back so that you open up your chest. And then the second breath, pulling in that belly until it's really, really tight, holding it and then breathing out through the mouth and softening the belly. Really soft, pliant, relaxed belly. And with the third breath, 
making fists, tightening the arms, locking the jaw, furrowing the brow, squinching the toes, tightening the buttocks and legs, every muscle you can, tight, 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 breathe out. Really soft body. So we're associating breathing in with awareness and breathing out with ease. Whenever you feel any stress in the mind, extend the length of the out-breath and soften whatever muscles in the body might be tight. So next, let's take a quick survey of the body and just note if there are any sensations of tightness or constriction. If your clothes feel too tight, just release them, do whatever you need. If your legs are folded in an awkward way, if your hands are in an uncomfortable position, just really be indulgent. And what we're doing here is associating awareness with compassion and care. Very often in our jobs, our awareness is associated with fixing, solving, putting out fires. It's a very busy awareness that's looking for things that are going wrong. And what we're doing in meditation is changing our awareness to a kind of observing that wants us to be happy, that wants us to be taken care of. So find an anchor to keep in mind, to settle the mind. What is an anchor? It's an ongoing sensation that keeps the mind present, like the anchor of a boat keeps the boat from floating away. So what are the anchors available to us right now? There's the sound of the room. There's the feeling of the breath in the body. So if you want to work with the breath, just find an area of the body that expresses the inhalation and exhalation. I personally like to use the belly because in concentration meditation, it's actually preferable for many to breathe using the abdomen rather than the chest, which is the way we breathe when we're anxious or exercising or frantic. So if you could feel like you're pulling in your breath and pushing it back out with the very subtle movements of the belly and just be aware of it, if you work with the breath, it's often useful to count inhalations and exhalations as a way to keep the breath in mind. You count one with the first inhalation, two with the next out, 
three with the next exhalation, inhalation, four with the next out, and then five, and then back down, four with the next exhalation. So we're counting from one to five and back down again and again. One, three, and five always on the in-breath. Another wonderful meditation anchor is a simple phrase that you repeat as often in the mind, and a phrase associated with setting an intention for peace, a phrase such as, may I know true peace, or may I feel safe, or may I feel happy, or I love you, keep going. Occasionally, or frequently, thoughts will slip past your awareness of the anchor and it will hijack your awareness and it will pull you away and the next thing you'll know you'll be in a fantasy about the future the past or some place other than here and all of that is perfectly natural it's just as important how you respond when this occurs. Just greet the experience with forgiveness and patience, kindness, no judgment. Just very gently bringing your mind back to the present, reconnecting with the sensations of sitting on the floor, Reconnecting with the breath, or the sounds, or your metaphrase.
So for the second part of the meditation, let go of your anchor and just relax. Release any striving. Sit really comfortably. And we're going to be doing some reflections based on the Buddha's Ten Recollections. So starting out, just bearing in mind an image of yourself sitting. Just allow the following words to float through the mind. They are the Buddha's daily reflections. I am of the nature to grow old. I am of the nature to become sick. I am of the nature to die. This body will be a corpse. I will be separated from all that is dear to me. My happiness will result from the quality of my actions as will my suffering. As we feel ourselves breathe in and out, knowing one day we will have a final breath, the body will breathe out and not back in again. Bearing that in mind, we can do the following of the recollections. Bring to mind skills you've developed, things you've done and accomplished that make you feel a sense of joy. What do you feel good about? If you were faced with a dire prognosis, looking back on your life, what activities brought you the most joy? Just visualize them or know them. and then set an intention 
to prioritize these activities, to stay committed to what brings you fulfillment. Bring to mind the people that you feel you can really rely upon. Not those that are the most interesting or dynamic, but those you would turn to in a time of struggle, fear, agitation, people who have expressed kindness, people that you feel you can share the burdens of life. Make or set an intention to stay connected. To stay in touch. To forgive anything that has lingered, any resentments, or to express what needs to be expressed to solidify this relationship. Finally, knowing the fragility of the body, the lack of guarantee, bring to mind any of the ways you treat yourself, whether through thought or action, that you would not treasure? Have you been too harsh or critical, too demanding? Have you not treated yourself kindly during difficult times? Have you not taken care of yourself?
and set an intention to find new compassionate ways to treat yourself. And when these tendencies arise, to ask them to step aside. May all beings know peace and security.